Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 19th, 2013, and this is episode 1152 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Wednesday hump day, right through into the middle of the week, and uh, I've got Jerry Gettle for you guys today. Who is Jerry Gettle? That doesn't sound like a really common name now, does it? Uh, well... Jerry Gettle, I guess I would call, is one of the biggest evangelists out there for Heirloom Seeds. He is the owner and founder of Baker Creek uh, Orga- or Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, located at www.rareseeds.com. And uh, he's been one of my favorite seed suppliers for going on five years now, and his catalog is really like a coffee table book. It's just one of the most gorgeous things. I, I can't believe a seed company can even afford to do that, but uh, with the success that they've had, maybe that's part of why. He'll be on with us in a minute to discuss all types of things in the seed industry and uh, how you can save your own seed and why you should be doing it and you know what's being lost if we don't. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, westernbotanicals.com. You know, my philosophy with herbs is I plant herbs, I plant herbs, I plant herbs, and then when I think I've run out of stuff to plant, I plant more herbs. Uh, herbs are one of the most important things in the world to me, from culinary to medicinal and back, but I can't grow everything and I can't have fresh herbs all the time in any climate. You know, you're going to have certain things that grow at certain times of year. So when I need something I don't have or I can't go out and wild craft, I go to westernbotanicals.com and go, do they have this? And I think, Jack, you know they have this. They have everything. And sure enough, they will. And I know that it will either be organically grown or wild crafted. And I know that if I'm like, I got a problem and I don't know what to do about it, if I pick up the phone and I talk to the folks out there at Western Botanicals, they'll help me figure out what I need, including telling me, Jack, you don't really need us today. What you need to do is go see your doctor. Fortunately, they've never said that to me directly, but I know they'll do it. I know they've said it to other people. Um, if you want to gently care for your own health care needs, Herbs is a place to uh, to look. And the supplier to look to is Western Botanicals. They have my unequivocal support and recommendation. It's an industry that's very hard to find a good sponsor in, folks. It really is because everybody has something that's going to cure cancer or, you know, you know, I don't know, dissolve, you know, build the second Suez Canal or something like, you know, something ridiculous. Not these guys. Real people that really want to help you with great products, great service, great quality, and great pricing. And they support the Member Support Brigade. If you are a member of the Member Support Brigade, then you will uh, get a free membership from them valued at $50. It'll get you 25% off everything that they sell. Next up today, Harvest Eating. Chef Keith Snow with uh, the concept that cooking should be a life skill. It definitely is a prepper skill. And if you've ever lived on MREs for six months like I did at one time in my life, well, you get pretty creative with cooking pretty fast. And, you know, the time to develop that skill set isn't when you need it. It's before you need it so you can make it part of your everyday life. Get over to HarvestEating.com, subscribe to Chef Keith Snow's podcast, and I think you'll find that he can help you do just that. Check out his season. 
seasonings, my favorite, northern Italian, a grilled chicken, uh, low and slow barbecue, and Montreal steak. Those are my four favorites out of everything that he has over there. Uh, I cook with probably each one of those at least once a week. Check him out today, harvesteating.com. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about Walking to Freedom. Uh, we pretty much have the naughty list uh, codified and figured out what it's going to be. Uh, we are still kind of finalizing the voting on how the data will be presented. Will there be a watch list and things like that? But every board, every state has its own board now, and uh, we are doing everything we can to help others walk to freedom. Check it out today, walkingtofreedom.com. Check out 13skills.com. Programmer David Larson is uh, rapidly getting close to release of version 2.0, which will be far more interactive, allow people to track each other's progress, to encourage each other, find mentors, rate mentors. It's going to be really cool. It's been a long road, but uh, we are taking 13 Skills to the next level. If you've forgotten about 13 Skills, remember, a lot of you guys signed up, and you've, you said you're going to work on 13 new skills in 2013. Uh, we're halfway through the year, folks. Have you knocked out six, seven of them? That's where you should be on your path. If you haven't yet, get to work on them. Remember, this is not about becoming a master. It's about developing proficiency or increasing proficiency in 13 areas of your life in 2013. Version 2.0 will be out soon. Become a member today so you're ready when it does. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that. You help support this show at 18.3 cents per episode. And you get great discounts to a huge quantity of vendors. And uh, pretty much those discounts will pay for your membership itself. I've been reached out to by quite a few international listeners and said, can you increase the discounts for international listeners? And the answer is, I don't have enough of you to be able to do that. I can't really bring a value proposition to the vendor for that. And even though there's a pretty big international audience, it's not like it's all in the UK or all in Canada or all in Australia or all in New Zealand or all in Holland or, you know, it's, it's everywhere. So it's very, very spread out. So it's hard to do much with the discounts for you guys. You do get all the other benefits, the zip files of every episode. You get, you know, the, uh, the ebooks, you get the videos, you get everything that's in there. Um, but you know, to be honest with you, you could join and download all that stuff and quit. Uh, so if you're international, you really are kind of just supporting the show. If I could do more for you, I would. Uh, I'm looking to expand some things that would apply to in the international audience, but it's a difficult challenge. And you have to understand, when I go to a vendor now for the U.S. domestic audience, I can say, look, I have thousands of people with a verified method of payment that buy stuff in your industry. They're my best customers. Would you like uh, access to them in exchange for a discount? And generally, a person with a business mind that has sufficient margins to do a discount and still make a profit, uh-huh, yeah, how do I do that? Um, when I start saying, well, you know, will you alter your business practices and ship to Australia for me? Uh, why? Well, I have like uh, 20 guys over there. Yeah, no. So that's why. It's not that I don't want to. It's just a challenge that I have. That, you know, I can only do so much uh, with my kind of, you know, reverse marketing muscle for you guys to obtain discounts. So that's a limitation that I freely admit. Anyway, with that, I've got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and I'm ready to bring on our special guest, Jerry Gettle, founder and owner of Baker Creek uh, Heirloom Seeds, located at rareseeds.com. With that, hey, Jerry, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, great to be here. Sure appreciate you having me on. Hey, um, start out with telling people a little about your uh, your company. I mean, I remember when I discovered you guys, I started looking for every – 
you know, provider of heirloom seeds, every provider of stuff that was hard to find, every provider of something cool. And I just went, and anybody that had a catalog, I requested. I got yours, and it was like a coffee table book. I mean, I, I actually do keep your seed catalog on my coffee table. It's like a, a the thing for guests to browse through. Um, how did your company become what it is? Well, it's just, actually, it just started as a hobby, and it really, um, you know, it's still a hobby, but it's uh, gotten more busy than uh, most hobbies usually are. But uh, anyway, it started out in my bedroom when I was 17, actually. Um, I'd always been interested in seeds, and I knew when, when I was, like, uh, three and four years old, five years old, that someday I wanted to work for a seed company. And as I, you know, became a teenager, I, you know, started thinking on ways to make that happen. And when I was 17, I thought I'd put a little price list out. I'd been collecting seeds and put a price list out and send it out to people in Missouri where we're at. And um, each year since then, the first year was really slow, but after that, each year since then, it's gotten busier and busier. More and more people find out about it. It's pretty much just word of mouth and, uh, uh, you know, sending out catalogs and increasing the varieties we have. That seems to help, too. The more varieties we get, the more people uh, find us on the Internet and also the more people, you know, recommend a variety and so forth. Yeah, you guys have uh, the Heirloom Gardener magazine. Now, I've known about that magazine for a while. I didn't really realize that you guys were the ones behind it, though. Yeah, it's kind of a lot. It was, I started in 2003. I'd always wanted to, uh, it was, ever since I started the seed company, I wanted to, you know, get some kind of magazine going that talked about, you know, pretty much just heirloom growing vegetables, recipes, and, and also ways to, uh, you know, preserve and can and so forth. Any old-time traditional vegetables and ways of, uh, you know, food and uh, gardening. And it, it started out basically as a company magazine, and in the last few years it's kind of got a broader reach. We finally have got it into uh, several dozen different stores, you know, like Barnes & Noble and so forth, and um, it's finally finally taking off. The first eight years or so, six, seven, eight years, it was basically just in our company circles, you know, our really dedicated customers, and now it's kind of getting, uh, you know, outside the company a little bit. Yeah, I, I think I found an attractor supply is where I where I discovered it. Yeah, so it's um it's definitely definitely a lot of interest, you know, and every year seems to be more interest, which is finally given kind of a specialty magazine like the Heirloom Gardener that we put out a chance because uh, you know it's it's definitely a topic. There's tons of gardening magazines out there, and there's tons of food magazines out there. So uh, uh, it's fortunately for us, you know, there's a lot of interest right now in heirlooms, and that kind of keeps a magazine that's kind of a uh, more specific than just gardening or just food, and it gives us a little chance to, uh, you know, get a get a circulation going enough that it can be self-sustaining. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you guys specialize in exactly that heirloom seed. So, you know, from your perspective, can you explain the primary difference between an heirloom seed and you know, hybrid seeds, which are not GMOs but are pretty much dominant in the mainstream market today? Or so, what's the what's the real difference there? Well, an heirloom seed is what seeds, you know, used to always be before, you know, modern hybrid seeds and gene-altered seeds and patented seeds took over. Um, basically, the, the heirloom seed is one that was passed down from generation to generation. It's open-pollinated and non-hybrid, which basically means it might have started out as a hybrid, you know, maybe back, you know, 200 years ago it was a cross in somebody's garden. You know, they might have found that the yellow tomato cross was a red tomato and made a pink or orange tomato, and they say seed from that. And after a number of generations, it came true, you know, or they, you know, selected out something they liked. Or in other cases, it's just a variety they found in their garden, you know, that might they might have been doing well. And every year they would save it, you know, over many, many years and kind of develop it, their own strain or their own type 
and uh, the original name might have got lost, and then it might have been called something like Get Granny Cantrell's German Red, which is a variety we have, which is likely not the original name, but over the last, you know, 100 or 150 years, a lot of varieties adapt to their climate and actually become basically new strains or new varieties. So the hybrids, on the other hand, it's a cross between two different varieties that is done every generation. So you really can't save seed from that strain unless you want to do plant breeding. It's not something that you can uh, save seed from and replant and expect to get the same thing from. It's just like when you have a, uh, you know, a poodle and a Dalmatian and you get a puppies from them, you're going to get multiple different types of dogs. You're not going to get, they're not going to all be uniform. And the same thing happens with vegetables. You've got to, it's not uh, self-sustaining. It's something that you can do plant breeding with, but not something to, uh, you know, rely on. So what are some of the main advantages then of growing our own heirlooms instead of, instead of, you know, working with hybrid seeds? The biggest advantage, um, other than just the history and the stories and also the flavor of the heirloom varieties, is the ability to not depend on anybody for, you know, you don't have to pay anybody for, uh, royalties for patents. You don't have to uh, worry about hybridization as far as not saving seed and going back to the source every year to buy seed. And you don't have to worry about genetic modification as long as you keep your seeds pure. That's the other, you know, issue with heirlooms is making sure that you uh, keep your seeds and learn, learn seed saving well. That's, you know, the main thing with, with uh, seed saving and heirlooms is learning learning how to save seed. But once you do that, basically you have a uh, indefinite supply of seeds that, you know, basically you'll always, as long as you uh, maintain growing them, you should have a supply. So, I mean, you, you bring up things that are like keeping your seeds pure. So one of the biggest concerns that people have ends up being, um, you know, ensuring that I don't end up with a lot of cross-pollination. So I don't end up basically creating my own hybrids or, or getting genetic modified traits into my foods. I've seen people take that to like the extreme, and I've seen people just not pay any attention to it at all. And I, I, to me, it, it's somewhere kind of in the middle uh, where you, you really need to be with it. It is, especially with uh, just hybrid varieties and so forth. If you do get occasional seed that might be crossed in a, uh, say, a tom- your neighbor's growing, say, hybrid tomatoes, and occasionally you get one out of every uh, 150 plants, turns out to be off type. It's no big deal. You just rub that plant out. On the other hand, on genetic engineering, which is primarily right now the biggest threat is corn for most home gardeners who are saving corn seed. Um, that's that's more of a difficult challenge. That's something that you got to be more careful with because they're uh, wind pollinated. Which uh, you know, anytime you're dealing with the wind, it's uh, not really reliable. I mean, it can take pollen, you know, dozens of miles in some cases. So you got to just do your best you can. But there's also you know some techniques you can use, like uh, hand bagging and hand pollinating if you're really serious, or planting way after you know somebody else is going to be planting. If the, you know the commercial farmers plant at a certain time either after or before, you know, there's, there's things you can do and also not grow your seed every year. If, um, if you know that, um, you can, you're having an early spring and you think you can beat everybody else to, to pollination, you can start early or later, but then don't grow it for a few years, growing up in one year. So you don't take the chance of getting crossed every year. I mean, every time you do it, it's more likely to uh, get contaminated. And for an example, for corn, it will generally last, you know, five to 10 years. So, uh, if you can grow enough for several years at a one at a time, it's better than you know saving seed every year on, on corn. And I mean, I've heard stories of corn being cross pollinated with some GMO traits from miles and miles away. But um, 
I do think that the risk is greater to the home gardener who lives right in the middle of corn country where there's a, you know, a, a GMO corn farm on every block uh, of, you know, 40 acres or a thousand acres even uh, than it is to the home gardener that's in suburbia, that there is, you know, a, a lower risk of contamination there. Definitely. And it's depending on where you're at. I mean, if you're in Chicago, there's a good chance that you could still have uh, pollination issues. Um, it kind of depends. If you're in L.A., it's not likely. It kind of depends on where you're at and how close you are to a major corn-growing area. I mean, it, it's a, uh, you know, it all depends on where you're at and, and how close and also which way the wind is blowing from the cornfields. If you, the wind is normally coming in one direction and, you know, you're on the opposite side, you're usually okay. So it, it just takes a little bit of strategizing. If you're in an area where you're having a lot of, uh, you know, where they plant quite a bit of genetic engineered crops, because we found, you know, surprisingly far how far, uh, you know, in our uh, seed growing that things get contaminated. But again, it depends on, um, you know, which way the wind's coming and where the crops are. So, you know, just trying to figure out where your neighbors, if they are commercial corn farmers, are and what directions the wind's coming from, you know, helps out a lot. And I've seen people do things, too, like select, you know, 12 cobs that look like they're doing really well about the time they're going to tassel and, you know, put a paper bag over them. And then, you know, as the as the tassels go to pollen on the top of the corn, shake that into a paper bag and manually um, uh, pollinate selected ears that then are the ears you've, you know, somehow marked with a twisty tie or something like that, that this is this is what I'm going to let go to get fully mature to seed and, and, you know, for a person that's trying to grow enough seed like you are to provide thousands of people, that's a little bit tedious. But for somebody that needs enough corn for next year for their small corn plot in the backyard, that's really not that big of a step. It's not. And it's actually something that we're uh, finally, we've been a little bit slow, but we're finally doing this year. We're grow, trying to grow about 20-some different corns and, get a, uh, you know, at least get a, um, a few pounds of each so in the future we can introduce more corns into the catalog because, that's a crop that's been a little bit difficult for us because they take a lot of space, and then we have a hard time finding a lot of farmers that want to grow them. So we're, if nothing else, we're going to have at least limited quantities in the future, if, if not in the catalog, at least online of things that we actually hand pollinate. So uh, that's, our, that's what we're working towards. It's, it's a, it is a bigger challenge, but at least we can have, we're hoping to have at least, you know, a few hundred packets of each in the future. So people that are really, really looking for a different old corn will have some ability to, uh, you know, will be able to offer some of them to them anyway. The challenge you're talking about right there, though, is that a perfect example of why it's important for more gardeners to, you know, pick a, a corn, pick a tomato, pick, you know, one or two or three things that they really, you know, work hard with and and, and develop themselves, you know, pick a squash, pick a, you know, because it, it does get difficult even with your own crops cross-pollinating, but, we need more small farmers and small growers focused on doing this work, correct? Correct, we do. Um, that's one of the biggest things. And a lot of home gardeners don't want to save everything in their garden. I mean, it's just if you have a job, it might be too much work for you. But w one thing everybody can do is pick something like you were just mentioning, maybe just one crop to start out with, and you work on keeping that pure, even if you don't grow it every year. Say, um uh, you like several different varieties of cantaloupe, but cantaloupe cross-pollinates really easily. So you, say every third year, though, you only plant the one variety. Say it's Jenny Lynn cantaloupe. Every third year, you just plant that variety. And then on, on the other two years, 
you could plant them all and just don't save seed. So every third year, and then you might do the same thing with a cucumber. You know, get a cucumber that you save every third year, and you only plant that cucumber. Because that's one of the biggest issues. A lot of home gardeners, okay, I like uh, zucchini, I like crookneck, I like acorn squash, I like uh, pumpkins, and so forth and so forth. So the biggest challenge is, you know, getting a home gardener to only grow that one crop on some of these crops that pollinate, they cross-pollinate easily. So, um, but, you know, and, and a good other, other things for home gardeners, if they're a little bit hesitant to do that to start out with, is start out with things like tomatoes or lettuce or green beans. Uh, those crops generally will not cross-pollinate more than about, well, it, dep- it depends on, uh, you know, the, your area again, but in general, you know, not more than about 25 to 50 feet. Yeah, and, I mean, with the, the cucurbits and the squash and all, that's another one that, I mean, if you think about how many seeds come out of two or three squash, Hand pollination is so simple because you've got a male and a female blossom, and I've done this every year with the stuff I want to save. I just look at that female blossom. Like, you look at it one day and you go, tomorrow morning, that thing's going to be open. You can tell. You pry it open. You take a male flower from the same type of plant but from a different plant. You pollinate it manually. You throw a little bit of uh, masking tape on the on the blossom so it won't open. A couple days later, it falls off. That one particular plant now or that one particular squash now or cucumber or whatever pumpkin you know how that was pollinated because you did it yourself and nothing can get in there because you've taped the blossom shut um and what i usually do is take like a little tiny twist tie not twist tie like a zip tie and i put that on the stem of that plant and then when that plant is harvested i know that's one for seed and i think that a lot of that concern can go away if people realize how simple because people say jack that sounds like a pain in the butt and i'm like it takes like Two minutes to do that. Yeah, it's it's very simple. It's the biggest thing is just making sure that when things are pollinating, that you're going to be around and that you're going to be able to take a few minutes every day. I mean, that's the, the biggest thing. If you have a few minutes every day, there's a lot of these things, you know, caging and bagging. Like on peppers too, all they really require is to have a cage over the plants that you're going to save. So if you don't want to hand pollinate on peppers, um, you know, you just cage the peppers. And that will reduce any chance of pollination, which even though peppers are self-pollinated, you know, sometimes, I mean, if we just grow a garden of peppers and save seeds, sometimes you'll have cross-pollination rates of, uh, you know, 25 to 50%. But um, if if you just put a little simple cage, like a little screen cage over a couple of plants, that will also keep your peppers. If you're growing multiple kinds of peppers, that will keep them safe. The same goes for, you know, several other plants, too, that are self-pollinated. On tomatoes, though, I mean, that's that's so easy. I mean, uh, it's basically you just plant them and uh, harvest them. It's uh, yeah. and, and the same with beans and so forth. So, I mean, I we suggest just taking whatever you can the first year and trying it. And even if you make a few mistakes the first years, if you're not trying starting out with something that's the last of its kind, you know, if a neighbor gives you – 10 seeds or something that's probably the only seeds left in existence, you might not want to experiment, experiment with it. But if you, ha- if you start out with something like, uh, uh, you know, a regular cucumber or melon or whatever, Jenny Lind or, uh, you know, Hell's Best or whatever, it's a good, you know, you definitely, if you just want to experiment the first year and see if you can do it, you can always take something that isn't so endangered and start out with something that uh, is fairly common. And that way you can get, uh, you know, if, if you feel like you need to have experience in it first, that way you can see if you're doing it right and test it out on your own. And sometimes accidents end up being happy accidents. A lot of the heirlooms that we have today were originally a cross that somebody proved out. Correct, yeah. So it's it's not like you're going to, even if you have an occasional cross, it's not like everything's going to be crossed, even if you don't do it right. 
it's not like every single plant is going to be crossed. It's, you're going to have a percentage of crosses. So if you plant 25 melons and uh, you might have five of them that come off a different type or, and some of them might not be any, any good to eat and you might get one that's just amazing to eat. So it, it, but again, on the other hand, it's not if you want to keep a, a really rare strain alive, it isn't a good, um, yeah. it isn't a yeah. good policy. But for just having fun in the garden or, you, or wanting to teach your kids about uh, genetics and uh, what can happen, you know, with different things crossing. It's actually a lot of fun, like you were saying. I mean, it's uh, to see some of the different combinations in the squash patch, it, it just even stuff that volunteers, you know, in people's backyards, a lot of times things will come up volunteer, and you'll get these amazing shapes and sizes and colors. So it's not altogether bad. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things I want to cover before we move on with the squash and the cucumbers and the melons, because I have people freaking out all the time when they see my videos of all these different varieties growing near each other. The cross between a squash or a melon doesn't matter to the fruit produced in that F1 generation. It only matters to the seed. And it seems, and I don't know where the where this came from, but there's this huge hysteria among gardeners that you're going to end up with some kind of you know weird Franken-squash or something if your squash cross-pollinates. And again, I don't mean from planting the seed. I mean from that first year of production, and that's just not the case, right? Correct, and I think a lot of where it comes from is um, people will plant a melon, and for example, a cantaloupe, and, and they'll harvest it, and it'll taste like a cucumber, and so people will think, oh, wow, my, squ- uh, my uh, cantaloupe crossed with a cucumber. But what normally is the case is the cantaloupe didn't ripen quite right. It either didn't have enough water, it didn't have enough something, and it... Um, it just, uh, you know, isn't quite ripe. And and when cantaloupes aren't quite ripe, they taste just like cucumbers. Mm. If you pick up baby cantaloupe and harvest it, it's going to taste just like a cucumber. And so people assume, since the cantaloupe is tasting like a cucumber, oftentimes they assume, oh, it must have crossed with a cucumber or a squash. Or if it comes out, you know, a little different uh, color than it normally does, that, you know, it might just be a mutation. It might be, you know, a cross in the previous generation, but it won't be a cross... That, you can't detect the cross that same year unless it's something like corn, where you're actually are harvesting the seed, because corn seeds come in multiple colors, so you can actually see the cross in the yeah, seed. Yeah, the seed is the seed is the thing. Where with the squash, the seed is not the thing. It's the the inside the thing. <laughs> Correct. So yeah, it's, and, and there's a few things like beans and corn, where you're actually the seed is what you're harvesting where you can actually see it the first year. If you plant blue corn with yellow corn and it crosses, you'll see blue and yellow mixed in the ears the same year. Versus on cantaloupe, if you plant two kinds of cantaloupe, you won't know about it until the second year when you replant those seeds. How did you end up with such a diverse collection? Again, like I said, and I hope you take this as a compliment, I have your Baker Creek catalog sitting on my coffee table like a coffee table book because of the photography and the varieties. And it seems to me that when I look at what everybody's doing, you have the most incredible breadth of varieties of things like peppers and melons and things like that I've ever seen anywhere. How did you end up with so much variety in what you guys do? Well, it's uh, kind of a mix of uh, reasons. I started out collecting things, you know, through – different seed savers. I joined Seed Savers Exchange and started trading with their members, found different people online who started sending me different seeds and trading with seeds in the, you know, mid and late 90s. But um, then over the years, like, um, especially the last four or five years, more and more people have just been finding out about us on the Internet. Uh, A gentleman from uh, the Philippines and a a gentleman from Portugal and a a lady from uh, 
Sweden and so forth and so forth are just, you know, contacting us online. They might, might have ordered seeds from us in the past. And they say, um, I have a box of Portuguese seeds, uh, heirloom Portuguese. I collect these seeds. Would you like to have a box full of different Portuguese seeds? And, of course, we say, sure. We've had people, you know, from Syria over the last year that have been sending us seeds that are worried that they're going to disappear with all the conflict. Um, and it's just on and on. I mean, it seems like the, the movement for seed saving isn't just an American movement. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a revitalization of part of, a, you know, culture, you know, not just in America, but everywhere. People, I think, are starting to miss their old varieties and want to bring them back. And at the same time, you know, they find out about our catalog and actually sometimes find some of their old varieties that they, that they might have had in Japan in our catalog and oftentimes offer something else as well. So they might be ordering something out of the catalog or want to trade for something out of the catalog. So in the meantime, we always are picking up on almost a weekly basis, sometimes twice a week. And our biggest our biggest issue now is just trying to figure out how to grow out and save all these different heirlooms. And some of them, you know, we're not able to save all of them because our climate isn't, um, so we pass them on to other people. But uh, in general, we try to save over the uh, course of a couple of years, we try to get these different varieties, get them saved, get them grown out, and try to get, you know, the best of them into the catalog. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you guys do an amazing job with that. And the other thing that you guys are openly doing, and I applaud you for this, is standing in opposition to genetic modification. Um, I just had, uh, I guess what I'd call a friendly competitor of yours on last week, the guys from High Mowing. And uh, oh, sure, yeah. they're doing the same thing. You know, I think they were the ones that started the Safe Seed Pledge. Um, and I think we need more and more people to do that. Why did you guys choose like to not just oppose it, but like publicly straight up, like we're, we're opposed to this. Yeah, basically, I mean, there's multiple reasons, but right about the time I was starting the seed company and what kind of gave me even a more of a, um, a push to go ahead and start it was I noticed a lot of the different older varieties at the time. And over the, even ever since I was, you know, I was born in 1980. So I started looking at seed catalogs about 1985 Ever since 1985, every year I'd noticed things disappearing out of the seed catalogs. And then in the, you know, the 90s, genetic engineering came out, and that kind of gave me even more of a push because I seen that as even a greater threat to losing more of the older varieties through cross-contamination and just so much control of the seed and so much patenting of the seed as well. So it kind of gave me a push to start the seed company. At the same time, I seen that as the single biggest threat to these old-time varieties was you know, both genetic engineering and patenting that came along with it, you know, increased patenting rights. The organizations like the American Seed Trade Association um, are, you know, trying to increase to make patents basically as long as they can. They want to make it so seed companies can patent seeds practically forever. I mean, so uh, it, stuff like this is very harmful to actually keeping the older varieties alive because what most seed companies are going to do before a variety um, gets out of patent, they're going to basically destroy it and to come out with another patented variety. So there's nothing that's, like, stable that long-term. Once it's not valuable to the company, they destroy it and get something else. So there's, it doesn't build part of America's culture or heritage or part of what can be grown in the gardens for my, you know, for our grandkids or great-grandkids because oftentimes these varieties will be destroyed by then. Yeah, and, I mean, there's there's really an issue with sovereignty for local communities there as well, isn't there? I mean, if you're dependent on somebody else for your food, you're pretty much dependent upon somebody else for your life. Yeah, it's it's depending on everything. I mean, they, they're trying to control everything. You know, genetically, the, 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 a lot of the corporations would like to control every part of our genetic um, 
everything we eat and everything we do and everything we wear, they they want to patent and control, which, um, you know, is a big issue, and especially with life. I mean, it's different if somebody creates a new kind of hammer, but it's oftentimes with life, they didn't really create it. It was something they might have accidentally found. It was something that, yes, they might have crossed two different types of tomatoes, but is it really something new? It's something that could have happened on its own. It's not uh, – that's the problem with patenting life. It's, it also um, is risky because if you have a patent on life and you own, say, 55% of the market in that type of uh, life, like, say, lettuce, for example, one company owns, like, 55% of lettuces, and most of those are probably going to be patented or hybridized, or patented rather on lettuces. There's not very many hybrids actually, but the majority would be patented. So if um, that company decided to quit selling lettuce, you know that would be dozens of varieties off the market. Plus, that's 55% of the lettuce seed. You know that's that's a big chunk. All of a sudden, we would have a lettuce shortage overnight. Yeah, there's there's been rumors that companies like Semanis, Monsanto, et cetera, are just trying to buy up every small seed company out there and basically do away with them through acquisition. Have you guys ever been approached with anything like that? No. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think on most of the time on heirloom seed companies, they're probably not as interested because they see us yeah. as extremely tiny, whereas they're looking for, when they consider small, they're looking for more like companies that are like $100 million. They're okay. looking, you know, they're looking at companies that, because they're, you know, you know, $12 billion or whatever. They're looking at for companies that might be $100 million or $50 million or $200 million. They're looking for more of the commercial they don't really. They don't own really any uh, retail operations. It's all uh, wholesale. So they're not really. Um, their business model so far, anyway, hasn't gotten into the retail market. But they're trying to control the whole wholesale market. Um, a, a few of the big companies are trying to control the whole wholesale market of seed. So uh, you know they want to control every zucchini seed from the start. But it doesn't mean that they're going to be the ones selling it to the consumer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's, what are some you know, that's of the big... more their goal is the overall picture, you know, trying to control the back end of seeds. Yeah, and I guess when they look at a small company like yours or, or one of your you know, competitors, they also realize, like, it's not worth it because they're going to tell me to go pound sand anyway. Many of you guys exist specifically to oppose them. Yeah, it's definitely um, something that they probably aren't that interested in. Basically, they're looking to, to make as much money as they can. And heirloom seeds are not a way to do that. And, um, of course, they can always buy a smaller company and switch it out. But it's going to take more time and effort than it's worth to them. It's going to cost them way more than it's worth, you know, in general. I think they would rather go after companies like, say, major companies in India or Africa that are, you know, actually supplying, you know, half the continent or, you know, so forth in a certain region. So, I mean, there's a lot of global companies that they can still keep buying out before they're going to be interested in the tiny, you know, the tiny companies. But uh, it could happen in the future. But, but yeah, the biggest thing right now is, you know, they're trying to buy out as many of the wholesale and plant breeding uh, companies and also, uh, you know, basically buy out also the universities and the research. That is where it really is at, isn't it? Because what they they do, and I I cringe every time I get an email from somebody that says, I have a – a son or a daughter that's really loving this stuff and wants to go to college now and is considering going to get a degree in agriculture. And I'm like, Oh God, no, you know, and I hate to be that way, but the reality is that entire agricultural department is probably funded by grants from Conagra, Bear and Monsanto. Um, and and they're going to be very controlled. 
Yeah, and I'm like, go get a degree in organic chemistry or something like that, and and then apply that to soil sciences or something like that, because to me that is the future of of, of agriculture, small to mid scale, is going to be doing things a more natural, holistic way, because. I don't know how you feel, but as I look at modern agriculture, I see a train wreck in the future. Like this, this little green revolution experiment has pretty much spun itself to the end, and everything they do to modify this food just results in more, listen, uh, in more in poorer practices and more land erosion, more destruction, and eventually you have to hit kind of the glass ceiling with that, and then it's nowhere to go but down. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, there's so many different uh, problems that they're having. I mean, with, uh, you know, genetic modification and the whole modern agriculture, I mean, there is there is a lot of temporary, you know, so-called, you know, benefits, temporary benefits, but every time these benefits seem to be wearing out, it's like, okay, we develop plants that are benefit beneficial to the companies anyway and the, and the big, you know, corporate farmers that uh, can resist, uh, you know, being sprayed with Roundup. So but the whole problem is over the course of a few years, then they start having weeds that also are becoming resistant to Roundup. And so you got to go on to another chemical, a harsher chemical. And, and then they go to 2,4-D, right? They go yeah, to 2,4-D next, which is like one, one little tweak away from Agent Orange. That's, that's Yeah, and then once that's done, then you got to try to find someplace else to go. And that's that's the problem. I mean, it's not something that's sustainable and isn't, isn't something that's going to likely be, uh, you know, happening year after year forever. It's something that's going to – and also just not having the ability, you know, to save your own seed. It's being, being operated by just a few companies. And also we don't know um, – there's so many other things that are happening, like um, – Several studies that have been done showing the decline in butterflies and bees and so forth. We don't know that you know, this is the sole cause, but you know when you consider that genetic engineering is also increasing the amount of sprays being sprayed through uh, yeah. their Roundup Ready crops. You know, yeah, it might only be five or ten percent of the problem with the bee uh, problem that's actually genetic engineering, but then all the additional chemicals. Um, also, farmers—the way farmers are uh, growing these crops. They're tearing out all the, you know, fence rows. They're getting bigger and bigger and bigger with the whole, the whole system is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's less and less areas left for the bees and the butterflies. Well, yeah, the biodiversity goes down. But then the other side of this, I had always thought the corn could only have so much an effect on a bee population other than what you're talking about with the loss of biodiversity because bees don't generally hang out in cornfields and harvest corn pollen. But last week, I have a little stand of triple-play sweet corn that I'm growing out the back, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching bees on the tassels harvesting corn pollen. And if somebody would have told me that, I wouldn't have believed it, but I saw them doing it. Yeah, it's. I mean, they, they definitely will harvest it, especially when that's all there is left, you know, in a big field, when that's all there is left. I mean, they almost have to be in the corn pollen, and and it's not, you know, it's just the whole. I mean, the the loss of, uh, you know, basically addition of corn and the loss of everything else on the farm. There's so many farms that 50 years ago, you know, the farmer's wife had a flower patch out in front. Um, they had an herb garden. They might have had an orchard. They probably had, uh, you know, they had their chickens running free. It looked like a farm. There was lots of activity, lots of butterflies. Now a farm consists of rows and rows of corn that gets sprayed, you know, regularly. And even the old farmhouse is not there anymore. The people live off in town somewhere, and they have uh, farm workers that manage the farm. The whole the whole picture 
of our farm is went from being beautiful to being looking like a factory. Yeah. Now I'm encouraged. I don't know about you, but I'm very encouraged that we're we've kind of hit the the bell curve top of that peak of advancement in modern agriculture. And I'm seeing more and more small two, three, four, five, ten acre farms crop up. And if a person's going to stay light on automation, I think ten acres starts to top out what one family, you know, effectively can manage intensively, unless you go into livestock and then you can go out to further things. And we're seeing like the return to almost the gentleman farmer thing where the guy has a job, but they also run the farm and some people eventually go full time with it. And I'm very encouraged by that, and I think it's the desire of the consumer to eat things like are in your catalog that gives those people a niche market because they can't compete selling you know corn against Walmart at a quarter an ear, but they can sell it's something you could never buy there. It's definitely, I mean, the whole the whole picture has gotten so bleak looking on the one side that I mean, I think even people that have no history with you know gardening or planting anything are starting to realize, you know, you know, also the, when you have kids and you start looking at the health effects of, uh, you know, modern food in America, you know, um, when you start seeing what it's doing to uh, our kids and our families, I think people are starting to realize that maybe we should start eating real food that isn't so processed, that doesn't have all these additives and sprays and chemicals and is genetically altered. And, uh, you know, you get a package of food today at the town and you realize that, you know, 90% of the ingredients, you don't even know what, what they are. So, I mean, I think, uh, I think it's, I think, uh, you know, people are starting to, you know, when they taste a real tomato and think, yeah, this is what a tomato tastes like that was grown without chemicals. And that's, you know, a traditional variety. I mean, I think it's starting to register in people's minds that the difference that, um, you know, Eating healthy makes. Yeah, I think that maybe one way we could get more awareness is if we can't get GMO labeling through, which I would love to see, is if you're going to put something in, in food, then it should be on the list of ingredients. So, you know, if you're if you're eating something with corn in it, it would also should be on the list of ingredients as atrazine. And if you're eating something with soy in it, it should say glyphosate. You know, it should actually <laughs> include the ingredients. So that people actually know. The, yeah, it's not just this, because people say, well, that's why to wash your produce and all. I'm like, when you drench soil in something that a plant lives in and you understand like the hierarchy of things like nitrogen and nutrient will always concentrate at the highest level in the seed. So in a, in a, in a legume, for instance, the highest nitrogen content of the plant itself is going to be in the bean, right? So Correct. that's also where all the nutrients going to concentrate. So including the crap. So when you're eating something with soy in it that was made from the bean itself, it's the highest concentration of glyphosate or 2,4-D if the, the glyphosate's worn off on the weeds you could possibly get is in that soybean seed. Yeah, it's, I mean, this stuff, I mean, put a, you know, if people don't believe it, they can just put a, uh, you know, put a, um, put some, uh, some food coloring in some water and uh, see how much, you know, people don't think that it absorbs, you know, these chemicals, but put some food coloring in some water and put in some, uh, kernels of corn and see what color they come out in you know they definitely are absorbing these chemicals or a, a third grade those, science experiment do that with a stock take a stock of celery and stick it into colored water and watch what happens yeah, it, I, it just, i've never yeah, thought it, of that that's a great point it takes on these uh, chemicals it isn't like these plants are rejecting that chemical you know that's kind of the argument well they take on so little but when you uh you know when you put a plant into water with a chemical added, it definitely changes the color, you know, within hours. I mean, you start seeing, 
you know, that a white zinnia turn green or red or whatever color the food color is. I mean, these plants are absorbing that right into their systems. Now, I think the work that people like you are doing is incredibly important to our food sovereignty in the future and to preserving this diversity. And because of that, I order from you every year, whether I need to or not. I order from just about every competitor you have in your size and space as well. I spread my business out to support what you guys are doing. From kind of that standpoint, you know, understanding that, that you guys are important to – because I can't possibly maintain the number of strains that you do. I, I can't do that. So I, all I can do is support you. What are some of the biggest struggles that companies of your size and your space in the market are facing today? Oh, it's uh, – well, you know, there's multiple different issues. One of them is just uh, there's actually probably not enough of, of us, and that's small tea companies out there. There's a lot of demand. And once people find out about your company, you know, it seems like there's a lot of these small seed companies, you know, high mowing and southern exposure and so forth. We're all we're all really busy right now, and that's one of the struggles. And with being busy, it also means, you know, potentially growth and uh, infrastructure and resources. So it's like all of a sudden we uh, have a farmer that is growing this a certain amount of this squash seed and now it isn't enough anymore. So we need to find another farmer to help supply that demand as well. And, you know, that's just part of it. Then there's, you know, there's additional catalog printing. There's, you know, just all the different issues, additional uh, warehousing or storage space, packing space. It's all these issues, you know, while it's great to be busy, it's also trying to figure out how to move your seed company in a, in a, in a, in a direction where it's, uh, you know, growing sustainably and keeping up with the demand, that's, you know, our biggest uh, our biggest hurdle in the busy season because it's so seasonal, too. So it's like every season you're busy. So you've got to make sure you're caught up for the um, the main busy season, though, is, you know, December, January, February, and March, and April. So you've got to make sure you're ready for those months because if you don't, you'll never catch up again. Yeah, definitely. Now, would you say that that does create an opportunity for small-scale growers that want to go into and specialize in, in several seed strains and approach companies like yours and say, hey, I would be willing to become a provider of, you know, this rare form of cowpea or this rare form of corn? And, you know, I'm sure there's a vetting process to make sure that they know what the hell they're doing, but is is there a lot of opportunity in that space right now? There is. There's a lot of seed companies out there, including us, that are looking for small growers. And, you know, part of the challenge is for some crops are very easy, you know, to save seed from, and, you know, you can get quite a bit out quickly by hand. Other crops are, we're getting to the point now where we almost need to be, like, semi-mechanized. The, the people that are doing it need to be good, uh, you know, sort of good at tinkering and making things because we're not really, uh, you know, uh, most of our growers aren't really big enough to own commercial equipment to, like, clean uh, seed. I mean, it isn't, they're not making enough to do that because a lot of this equipment is really big and it's for, you know, multiple acres versus, you know, so that's the biggest challenge is finding people that are good at inventing ways to extract seed, you know, basically by hand versus sitting there all day and trying to pick watermelon seeds out of a watermelon. So yeah, uh, that's one of the biggest it, challenges. Yeah, because if, let's say I grow uh, a particular watermelon, I'm growing moon and stars this year, and I decide I want to save some seed out of that, well, you know, saving enough seed for me to use next year, give to a neighbor, give to some friends, and trade with some people is easy. If if you if you want me to give you ten pounds of seed out of that, that you know that starts to you know kind of wear you out a bit. 
It does. So that's why, I mean, there's lots of people out there that are, that are very clever and um, coming up with ways to extract seed. It's, these are well, people that have done this for a long time, but it's kind of, uh, you know, died out because small seed companies have kind of died out, unfortunately. And they're just, you know, trying to come back again now. But um, there's a lots of, uh, you know, old machinery out there that also helps people sort, uh, uh, you know, their seeds out. But, again, you have to be kind of good at uh, mechanical things, or otherwise you're going to be, t- like myself, I'm almost totally lost when it comes to a machine. So <laughs> I, I have to rely on other people to help me run those, those type of uh, equipment. Can you say maybe some of your favorite things that you guys have that's maybe unique to you or not, you know, is widely available uh, that you think would be good things for people to uh, to start growing? Because, uh, again, your selection is pretty amazing. Well, there's so many exciting different things. But, I mean, some of my favorites, um, for example, in the watermelon category, I like the Orange Glow watermelon and the Alibaba watermelon, which is the orange glows are just a bright orange-fleshed watermelon. It's one of our most popular varieties in the entire catalog, as is the, you know, the Alibaba, which is a big uh, Iraqi, actually, heirloom that uh, keeps really well. Um, it's very crisp, very good flavor. Um, but there's just so many other things as well. I mean, of course, you know, one that a lot of people have actually grown is the Cherokee purple tomato. It's uh, very popular, but it's also just a very good standby every year. We almost have to grow, you know, Cherokee Purple because it's uh, not only, uh, you know, unusual, but it's also very, um, very flavorful, and it's very, um, the, the deep color, any of the deep colored tomatoes tend to have a much more intense flavor, and we really like them to cook with them as well because they have a very sweet but yet very, uh, very tomatoey taste as well. Yeah, the absolutely. Crops, I mean, uh, cucumbers, we really like the little, like, crystal apple and lemon cucumbers, so the little round cucumbers. Yeah, those They're, are great. Uh, really sweet and burpless. And, of course, the colored Swiss chards, all the different colored Swiss chards, that's another one of the things we can't be without every year. That's something that a lot of people that have the whole we can't have a front yard garden thing could easily blend into landscaping. That's one of the, you know, because people see that and they think it's an ornamental, and it's uh, – I mean, it's one of our favorite things to grow every year. Sure, we grow so much that we eat it, we eat it, we eat it, we feed it to the chickens, we eat some more, um, and some of it ends up just, you know, in mulch because we grow so much of it because it's so easy to grow. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people in suburbia that you could, you know, put that in an ornamental planting around trees out front of your yard, and, and you know, it, it looks great, but yet it's a great food source. Yeah, the colored lettuces also are perfect for that, the um, red uh the Japanese red mustard that we have, that's another one that we really like to grow as an ornamental. It's just, uh, especially in the fall, some of these greens will just be intensely colorful. I mean, they're, they're as pretty, some of them are as pretty as any flower. I mean, they're amazingly uh, gorgeous, you know, mixed in, especially mixed in, you know, with your fall chrysanthemums or, you know, what, whatever you're growing in the fall, these greens really uh, are just stunning, you know, when they make a whole, you can have like a whole, uh, you know, garden of red if you want in the fall. Yeah, and tell me about this stuff I just found on your website called Chufa. I, guess, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's it looks like it's a perennial, and they call it ground chestnut. Yeah, it's a it's a little. Um, it sort of grows a little bit like a peanut wood, but not. It's not really not really like a peanut, but it's a little a little viney plant, and it makes these little um, pods, um, and they taste like um, these little seed like pods. They're actually more of a tiny tuber than a um, than a seed. But um, they taste they taste kind of like well it's hard to describe kind of a but the closest thing I can think of is kind of a sweet coconut like taste so kind of wow. a mild sweet 
kind of a buttery coconut flavor is the closest thing I could think to them. But they're really, really good eating. They're like a small, they're about the size, they're a little tuber about the size of a bean or a little bigger, a bean seed. I'm, I'm reading one of the reviews on your site, and now I'm in love with it because this is what it says. Chufa or nutgrass can be invasive and will wreak havoc on your lawn once it gets out. They do not. They do taste good, and I love the smell of fresh roots. But if they're in your lawn, kiss a well-groomed lawn goodbye. Excellent. That's yeah. wonderful as far as I can. So I have an invasive plant that I can eat that tastes like sweet coconut that can't be gotten rid of that will multiply itself and provide me with a lawn. I bet my geese will eat the green part on the top. Um, and I think that you know a lot of these things. It depends. Do you want a well-groomed lawn? And I'm thinking, hell no, I don't want a well-groomed lawn, but. Uh, I've got some of these in my cart. I'll make sure I put my order in before the show goes live because you're probably fixing yourself out of these things. Yeah, they're they're really tasty, but there's a there's a lot of different crops, you know, like that that um, are very little, you know, have very little, uh, you know, uh, as far as being grown in America, they're very little uh, uh, significance at this point. But they should be more. Another example, my favorite actually is the ground cherries and uh, Cape gooseberries. Um, I prefer those over to almost any other fruit for pies and jellies and jams. They're, uh, you know, they have kind of a sweet pineapple taste, kind of mm-hmm. like between apricot and pineapple. And I, I'll just sit in the garden for a half hour eating them fresh for lunch some days because they're just so good. But um, also, I mean, there's nothing better, in my opinion, for a pie. I love apricot pie, but I think these are even better. Yeah, and those things grow like crazy. I mean, I made the mistake of planting them at a density for tomatoes, and I ended up with, like, this massive thing climbing out of the one bed into the next. And I, you know, I'm not making this up at all. I ended up having to hack uh, a path between the two beds with a machete of both ground cherries and tomatillos had both just, like, encroached. Um, and there was the production was unbelievable, and not from a lot of plants either, just a few plants. There's a lot of these crops like that that do extremely well, but people just haven't, you know, discovered them yet. Um, there's, there's actually, you know, dozens of other crops that we're trying to do more with and get other things in the catalog. We got quite a few unusual things, but the, the little berry, the plants that, that produce different types of berries, there's a lot of annual types of plants out there that will produce, like, you know, like garden huckleberries and ground cherries and so forth and so forth. They'll produce fruit the first year, which, you know, in the in the past, in our not-so-distant past, a lot of, uh, you know, farmers and gardeners heading west didn't have a lot of fruit. So this was a way to get fruit before their apples or pears or peaches started bearing, you know, four or five or six years later. So it was a way to get almost instant fruit, you know, every year in areas, especially that didn't have fruit yet, developed in the U.S. and, and other areas as well. So it's, you know, it was very important in our not-so-distant uh uh, history, but now it's, uh, you know, I think also going to be important in our future too for, you know, a lot of home gardeners that don't have fruit trees and, you know, want to have their own fruit. Tell me about this, uh, this, this giant Cape gooseberry. I'm familiar with, uh, ground cherries, but I've never, I'm, I'm, that's now been added to my cart as well. What, what, what is that plant all about? The giant Cape gooseberry, it uh, takes a little longer season. It would be, um, it would probably be about 120 days to fruit, so it's good for most parts of the U.S., but the far northern parts, it's probably going to be too long. But it, it grows kind of like a fuzzy, deeper green version of the leaves do of the um, gooseberry, so, uh, or not the gooseberry, the ground cherry. So it's um, somewhat similar, and the pods look somewhat similar, but they're about twice the size, and the berries inside are probably about one and a half times to two times the size of a 
a ground cherry, and the difference is they're bright orange instead of being a yellow, golden color. And uh, they're also sweeter, and they have more of a tropical taste to them than the ground cherry. Um, they're both to make excellent pies, though, by the way. Either one are tremendous pies. The ground cherry is slightly tarter, a little more lemony, and the Cape Gooseberry is a little bit more on the sweeter side. But they're both, I mean, I love them both fresh as well as, you know, preserved. Very cool. And i got one more for you here. Tamarillo or tree tomato. I've seen those in a lot of the permaculture videos in the tropics and subtropics where they grow them like a, a perennial tree. Um, will those produce in a long-growing season area of the U.S.? Like, I'm in North Texas, so I'm zone 8. I get, you know, easy 180 days or more of growing season. Probably not, but um, with some cover okay. and starting them early inside, um, you'd have a fairly good chance. But they're, they're a very long crop. And the other thing is, I don't know if the heat in the summer might be hard on them to keep them. I don't know if uh, they would flower in time before um, they would start. Uh, they would drop their flowers until it started getting cooler and the days started shorting. So I don't know. With cover, you probably could get them, though. I know um, I know people produce them along the coast in California where the winters don't drop too much. But they're probably like a 240-day plant. Gotcha, gotcha. That's probably so they, not going to work for me. They would be something more like in pots that would have to be brought in and out versus something put out directly in the ground, I'm thinking. That's that's always a possibility though. In shady areas during the heat of summer. That's that's maybe I'll maybe I'll play with those because they look really cool in like every permaculture garden in Australia, you know, around Sydney where they don't get the, the freezing, they're you know, somebody's they've got a tree tomato in their backyard and I'm always like, That looks cool, but you know, I can't grow that here, so I try to focus on what I can grow. Um Definitely, though, you guys have one of the most amazing selections I've ever seen, and uh, I don't know how you guys manage to do it. <laughs> no, it's just a lot. Of, we actually work with about 100 different farmers and gardeners, uh, plus what we produce on our own farm. So we grow about a – well, we trial about a 1,000 different varieties on our farm, but then we grow about upwards to 100 per seed. And then the other, you know, 1,200, 1,300 varieties come from the rest of the different seed growers, farmers, gardeners, so forth and so forth. Uh, some of the people are only producing one seed for us, you know, one type of seed, and others are producing, you know, 30 or 40 different kinds of seed for us. So we, it ranges from, you know, people that are just, uh, you know, on a home garden, basically, that's, you know, had learned seed saving, and they're only doing one or two things, to, you know, farmers that are uh, basically just doing seed saving full-time now for, you know, a, a, maybe six or seven or eight different, uh, you know, small seed companies. So there is um, a few of our growers that are actually doing it uh, as a full-time basis. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. You want to tell folks how they can learn more about uh, ordering from you? Oh, probably the easiest way for most people is just go to our website, rareseeds.com, um, rareseeds.com, and uh, check us out there. That's the easiest way right now. We do have catalogs. Unfortunately, we're out at the moment, but uh, we'll, we normally have catalogs from uh, Jan December through uh, mid-March. Normally, we'll have catalogs. And you guys even do some stuff like you have a Heritage Day Festival and things like that where people can come on up to Missouri and you got stuff going on in California, Connecticut, stuff like that too, right? We do. Uh, we have a monthly festival the first time of every month at our place in Mansfield, Missouri. And then our big event this year is going to be the Heirloom Expo that we help do with uh, numerous other seed companies and organizations. Um, we, we're, we're, uh, we help organize the event with, you know, actually over 300 different um, groups that are take part in it, but there's... Uh, you know, about a, a dozen of us or so that are helping really put it together. 
And uh, it's a event in the Sonoma County Fairgrounds in Santa Rosa, California. We'll have about um, somewhere around three or 4,000 different varieties on display there. Very cool, man. Well, I do appreciate you being with us today and, and sharing some great information with our audience. And uh, again, folks, I can't recommend uh, rareseeds.com enough, Baker Creek. And uh, Jerry, thank you for being with us today. Sure, appreciate it. It's great being here. Folks, with that, this has been uh, Jack Spierko today along with uh, Jerry Gettle, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're losing.